My name is Johnny Morrison, and you're listening to The People's Theology. If you're new to the podcast or you just forgot what we do because we have been on such a long hiatus, then in each episode, we attempt to explore culture and theology like they matter. Because they do. Now, maybe that sounds strange or even obvious to say that culture and theology matters, and that's true, it is. But sometimes the way that we talk about the Christian faith, well, it can feel kind of abstract and theoretical. Big ideas, sometimes beautiful ideas, but ideas that are hard to get on the ground, which I think leaves some of us feeling like those ideas are just empty. I think this is why so many of us have had to deconstruct our faith traditions again and again. Because when our faith ran into the realities of the world around us, we found that our faith was lacking. Maybe the easiest place to see this, or I should say hear this because it's a podcast, is in the strange merger of religion and politics. Sometimes this merger really reveals how strange and empty our faith can be, because sometimes it seems like our faith is being waved like a political flag in order to secure a voting block. And I'm a very good Christian because the Pope said something to the effect that maybe Donald Trump isn't Christian, okay? And he's questioning my faith. I was very surprised to see it, but I am a Christian. At other moments, Christian leaders offer, quote-unquote, words of wisdom to a pressing political and cultural event, and it feels just insufficient and empty to actually deal with the cultural event we're seeing. And this last Sunday, I addressed my church and, by extension, millions of people who watched us on TV about the problem of racism and lawlessness. And look, racism and lawlessness, burning down buildings, both of those things are wrong. But they are not the root problem in America. They are symptoms of the root problem, which is rebellion against God, sin. And then sometimes it just sounds stupid. We miss, we understand the curse that was slavery, mm-hmm. white people do, and we say that was bad, mm-hmm. but we miss the blessing of slavery, that it actually built up the framework for the world that white people live in yes. and lived in. And so a lot of people call this white privilege, maybe a great thing for me is to call it white blessing, that I'm living in the blessing of the curse. It's no wonder that Christian faith feels abstract and even empty. And it's not surprising that folks would need to deconstruct their faith or leave it altogether. But it also makes me think that there has to be something better. And the reason I think that there is something better is because our faith hasn't always looked like this. And it doesn't always look like this. There are moments in our story where the real faith of real people meets the crisis of real moments in beautiful and awe-inspiring ways. And the question that I want to ask, the question I think we need to ask, is how do we get that kind of faith? In this episode of The People's Theology, we begin a two-part conversation with Dr. Reggie Williams. Williams is a social ethicist, a professor, and the author of the marvelous book, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. 
which is an exploration of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the transformation of his theological thinking from a theology that is, well, abstract and disembodied to one that is deeply grounded in real life. I'm excited for today's conversation because Williams is so helpful to me. He challenges the places where I tend to make my faith abstract and gives tools and an imagination for what it looks like to live this thing on the ground. And through his work and his words and his writing on Bonhoeffer, we get a glimpse of that other kind of church we can become. In this first episode, we'll introduce Williams, hear from him, and learn what led him through his own journey, all while wrestling with his work, which is, as it is for everybody, always biographical at some level. Then in the next episode, we'll dive in a bit deeper. So to begin with, let's introduce Dr. Williams with a question I like to ask every guest on the show, which is first and foremost, how do you want to be known? My goodness. I thought you were going to ask me something easier, like Bonhoeffer's understanding of Stelfertreitung, rather than how I want to be known. <laughs> I am really a, I guess you might say, son of the black church, but how would you put that? Um, uh, I'm a, a, a Christian social ethicist rooted in the black church, ordained in the, um, in a black denomination, black church denomination, you know, in a conversation with society, with uh, Christians, um, seeking to understand the way of Jesus to help recalibrate what it means to be human and to be Christian away from false and harmful ideals. That is both a beautiful and kind of heavy answer. And I wonder what led you there? What led you to that? pursue what kind of questions led you there since i was interested in going to a christian college which was pretty early on in my journey i was in my late teens i wanted to first i wanted to read the bible in hebrew and greek this was my intent but as i was looking to read the bible in hebrew and greek i was i came to realize when i finally got to a christian college that i was wanting to know what they thought about what living life was about they wanted what they thought living life was about. Um, I was looking to know, looking for guidance um, on how to live out the gospel daily. What does the gospel look like on the ground? Not just preached, although preaching is important. You know, not just baptism. The baptism is important. No, not just uh, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is important. Not just ideals or claims that we might make about who God is or what God does, but what we should be doing. You know, why this language that we use only on Sunday morning, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord, glory, these kind of this language, what does this mean for how we should be living um, our lives in relationship to God and each other and the earth? Mm. Even more specifically, living with fear of tragedy of something bad happening and when i was younger um i can remember i was i must have been third grade when i was a we were my we went on a fishing trip my dad took us on a fishing trip my brothers and i have two brothers um and sisters now um i've got sisters 
my dad took uh, my brothers and I on a fishing trip. And when we left home, I remember being afraid for my mom, mm. afraid that the clan might break in and harm her while we were gone and couldn't defend her. I had already been assaulted in a racial assault in third grade that I remember vividly. The clan would get in and harm her. But what she's really, really light. I thought maybe they might think she's white and they'll leave her alone. What am I supposed to do as a Christian in response to people who hate me for no other reason, who hate me and want me dead for no other reason than the fact that I'm born black in the United States? How do I live a Christian life in the face of these realities? This is why I was assaulted in the third grade. I let these boys do that. I just let them do it because um, um, Minister Cook, Pastor Cook, teaching Sunday school to children, um, I was eight, um, was teaching Turn the Other Cheek. He actually, I remember him going, giving a lesson specifically on forgiveness, forgive seven times 70. He brought in Turn the Other Cheek in, the, in that lesson as well. And I'm eight years old, really trying my best to live a Christian life. It's kind of a strange kid, I guess. Um, but I was taking him seriously. I remember this vividly, taking him seriously. I come to school and Scott and Philip, um, specifically Scott, the ringleader, um, was telling me really what his parents said about black people. Mm. And to, to forgive him really meant to act like it's not happening. Mm. You can't do that. You can't act like this isn't happening. Mm. It's happening. It is a historic reality daily carried out by people who are trying to make sure that this place is white and stays white or you know is returned to white um and he made up a reason one evening one one day when i re when i ignored him to um um physically harm me I, on my way home from school he jumped me and i didn't do i didn't do anything didn't defend mm -hmm. myself it took me till my adult years mm -hmm. to forgive myself for not doing anything but i was doing that as an interpretation of what it meant to follow Jesus. So what does following Jesus actually look like in a way that's not harmful to people mm. who are subject to to social evil? I mean, that feels like the question. Like my experience is really different, but I think in so many ways I kept going to Christian college in order to answer that question. And I think that's the purpose of this podcast itself, though again, it comes from a different experience, which is... How do you answer those kinds of questions? Is there a faith that answers those kinds of questions? Because so many of us, it feels like we have grown up in an environment where we've not received the answers that are enfleshed or embodied enough. And so I wonder, like, have you received that? Like, did you feel like you got that when you went to Christian college? No. <laughs> I mean, just to be, I'm going to be just completely blatant, straightforward with you. I guess that's why I kept going. Yeah, for me, it's one of the reasons why I ended why I just kept going. I still had questions, still had questions. You know, I was reading after I graduated um, from uh, college. I was play, I played basketball there too. I graduated, got married, and um, just buying books still, more um, buying books on the problem of evil, mm. reading up on this constantly. I mean, um, yeah, I just continued reading and reading and reading because the content that I got there uh, would sound something like this. Before I went to seminary, I had a conversation with the provost of that institution, with a leader in that institution uh, um, about 
going to grad school and maybe getting a PhD. So I wanted to study ethics. By that time, I kind of understood that I needed to be, I was, I needed to be in the area of ethics or practical theology or something. And the provost said to me, what kind of ethics? Academic or practical? And at the moment, that just baffled me. Mm-hmm. Uh, academic or practical? The the provost said that this because we do the we do the academic stuff here. I'm thinking, I guess I should have done my homework before I had this conversation. <laughs> but then, now that I'm an ethicist, I think that statement is unethical. Who mm. practices ethics that you don't? I mean, t- learns ethics that you don't use, you don't do. Mm-hmm. If if you can if you can engage in a kind of ethics that is talk only, mm-hmm. that's for the classroom only. If you can engage in a way of thinking ethically or even morally that has nothing to do with the way you actually live your life, you are being trained in something that is um, harmful. I'm doing this ethics. I'm sorry, this project on uh, black aesthetics, on aesthetics, the rules for beauty as it pertains to philosophy and art, and some statisticians who are speaking in the mode of black black aesthetics are quarreling with um, aestheticians. These are people who are who love art mm-hmm. and value art and evaluate art. On the one hand, you've got the people who say art should be only be not mean something. It just is. Mm-hmm. It is a product of culture, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean something. It, it, it is it stands on its own to be admired for its beauty alone while the others are while others are saying it always means something mm-hmm. it's created in a context from a context speaking to a context it means something all of the artwork that comes um, out of medieval Europe for example is talking something it's it's telling you something over time the the, the statuary, uh, this is this is what some might say propaganda. So what? How does how does this translate into um, the academy to learning, especially the theological academy, in, in which your training, your schooling, is to create a person, maybe who knows, who's informed, who's cultivated, civilized. But can that person speak with any kind of significant meaning to the moment in which they live? Can they can they say something that matters for how one should engage society in a healthy way, or do they? Or is their cultivation in the in that theological school just for them in the creation of a kind of a person that's being and not meaning? Did you catch what Dr. Williams was saying? He's saying that our educational systems, our seminaries, our churches, they train us and they teach us in this way that is abstract and disconnected from everyday life. It's these absolute truths that are supposed to apply universally, but when real world calls, these truths feel abstract and empty, like they have nothing to say to the world around us. And that's because the trick of modern education, of Western pedagogy, has been the acquisition of absolute knowledge, of facts, of information. And what we missed 
was what does that information do in society? In the real? As you trained in ethics, you, you developed this model of, of ethical analysis that's both to the character, mm. into the, um, that, that it pays attention to the kind of character that's being formed, and how it behaves in society. Mm. You can't have you, you can't have the character formation without the attention to the lived realities on a daily basis. Maybe that sounds really obvious. And in some ways it is obvious. But we talk about our faith, our ethics, our theology, as though there is this divide that Williams names between academics and pragmatics. But the problem is, when tragedy strikes, when the suffering of the real, when the deep questions of our moment come, abstract faith, abstract ethics has nothing to offer the very real, very hard moments of our lives. And the question is, why do we do that? Where does it come from? And is there a different way for us to orient ourselves in the world? Which is a good segue into Dr. Williams' work, specifically his work on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, you may know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is from books or preaching or sermons where people reference this figure who lived during World War II and resisted Nazi Germany as a Christian. But what most of us are unfamiliar with is what led Bonhoeffer to his convictions. Let's make that move right now, because in his dissertation, um, he writes a dissertation in what the Germans call a habilitation shrift, which is this, we would say, a, dis a second dissertation. Um, in his dissertation, some would say that Sanctorum Communio, the name of his dissertation, um, is a treatise on the church, developing an understanding of the church, his, 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 his ecclesiology. Well, others would say, no, he's interacting with a Christian concept of person. He's developing a specifically Christian concept of personhood. And it's, it's taking on, especially in his habilitation, it's taking on philosophy, philosophy, philosophical understanding of person. The, the European Enlightenment gave an understanding of person as enclosed rational minds. Mm that you're, you might say um, there's a separation between human being and personhood. Because the, the zygote that's developing inside of its mother is human. This is human being. The, new, the, the, the infant child is human. The elderly person who's lost their faculties and no longer can name themselves or feed themselves um, is still human. But um, these European um, Enlightenment rational turn towards the subject, these, these European scholars might say that they're no longer persons. Yeah. Why? Because personhood is, is defined by, by actualities, things that you can do by your capacities to be self-aware, think for yourself, hopes for the future fears for the future, regrets from the past, self-awareness, that's the person. Mm. And they measure that, um, that this person is a rational, knowing subject. 
Think back to the first philosophy class you ever took, high school, college. You probably studied Descartes. In his dictum, I think, therefore, I am. During the Enlightenment, personhood became about the individual and the individual's ability to think, to perceive, to make sense of the world around them. That's what Dr. Williams is naming. The individual becomes the person who can think, separated and disconnected from community, from world, from God. The baby doesn't have the capacity to reason. The elderly person no longer has the ability to reason. Mm. So, um, and when you have personhood, you have an amount of moral responsibility owed to you based on your ability to reason. Mm. Self-enclosed rational mind, those with reason are a law unto themselves. They are moral, reasoning, civilized, culture, able, you know, ability, you know, potential for cultural, all that kind of stuff. The individual, that's what the philosophers created in short. Mm. Okay. All right. But the individual, the one who is a law unto himself, the one who has the most capacity for logic and reason the European philosophers created, as they described it, was the man, white men, European men, ruling class men. Okay. These enclosed rational minds are men. Women don't have the same amount of reasoning. And when you get into the transatlantic slave trade and interacting with people of African descent, you get a hierarchy of being with white men on the top and black women on the bottom. Great chain of human types in possession of reason. Now, Bonhoeffer comes along and, and writes a dissertation. Um, and this dissertation, Sanctum Communio, talks about a Christian understanding of person interacting with these folks. The Christian, as an isolated, enclosed, rational being, for describing person is actually just sin. That's self-centeredness. Is what he was. What he's going to say. He's 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 dealing with this with in, in several ways. One, your identity, personhood, is not um, not about reasoning. What we might say, epistemology. Epistemology is the science of um, knowledge acquisition and justified belief. Um, so it, it, you, you're not going to you're not going to have your personhood based on your logic in independence from anybody else. Hmm. That might you that you might say is personhood in epistemological categories. Your individual rational mind. He moves the concept of personhood into social categories into the social, it's interaction with others. In order for me to have a person, for me to be a person, there must be another person present. It's not my enclosed mind, it's interaction with others that gives me my personhood. Hmm. We might th think about social roles, and I think I told you this in the classroom, uh, and, but you, you can see it even clear in social roles. I'm a father because of children, my children. You're a pastor because of congregants. Mm -hmm. I'm a professor when there are students. His social roles are a way of indicating how personhood is a social category, not one of my enclosed rational mind. Um, the, 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 the rugged individual coming over to the United States, also dealing with terrain and, and, and so forth, and, and navigating tough terrain by mm -hmm. your strength, 
not just your individual rational mind, but your strength, is also part of this practice, part of that project of the in, of the individual, not the social. Mm-hmm. He his a, a little more about this, the enclosed rational mind. He develops this understanding of, or at least he 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 uses makes use of this Lutheran understanding of sin. Um, by reference to the European philosophical understanding of personhood. Hmm. A Lutheran understanding of sin is the heart turned in on itself. I'm free for me. We see this in an American, very American understanding of freedom. Free from incursion by government policies. Free from incursion by my neighbor or my neighbor's needs. You know, I am free to have my property, myself, without interruption uh, by anybody. Okay, that's freedom from. Lutherans, including Bonhoeffer, would say that is not freedom. That's just sin. Freedom is free for others. In the garden, we were turned from God to see ourselves naked as we were. Turned from our partner, our mate in that moment, seeing only ourselves, covering ourselves. Interestingly, before this, before sin, we had seamless relationship with God and with each other. And but when we gain the knowledge of good and evil, we see ourselves and we try to make ourselves good. No longer in seamless relationship. We're trying to be good individuals. What God does in Jesus is to put us back into relationship. No longer trying to make ourselves moral individuals, but back in relationship with God and each other and the earth. One another way of thinking of ethics, and I and some of this I get I get from Bonhoeffer, on his good days. Um, uh, some of this I get, in getting from him is to say that the goal of Christian living, or we might say ethics, is not trying to make ourselves good individuals, but removing the obstacles that prevent our ability to be together in community. Remove those obstacles that prevent our ability to be together. You're not going to wield some notion of the moral or good and beat somebody over the head with it. Hmm. You're going to, to to sweep away, move away, pull away, do tear down the obstacles that disallow me to engage my sister, my brother, sibling. I cannot tell you how much I love what Dr. Williams just said. The goal of Christian living, of ethics is to remove the obstacles that prevent us from being in community. Our sociality, our community, our connection to one another is what begins to put flesh on our tradition, our theology, our ethics. Without my relationship to you, it doesn't make any sense. Without your relationship to me, it doesn't make any sense. But as soon as we begin to see ourselves not as individuals isolated from one another who think our way into meaning, but instead as deeply connected to one another, 
Well, then our theology and our ethics, it's no longer abstract, but it's how I remove the obstacles in my life that prevent me from being in relationship with you. It's how I live into my role as a friend and as a pastor and as a husband and as a Christian. It's not abstract, hypothetical truth. No, this is real, on the ground. For so many of us, we live in a place where our theology is just abstract, our ethics are just abstract. Part of it is the way that life is, part of it is that we've so imbibed this enlightenment individuality that we don't know for it to be different. But there are certain moments in our life that can kind of challenge that, that can pull us into a different way of thinking, a different way of operating. For Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as Williams records in his book, his thinking, though it kind of as an idea challenged this, it didn't actually become more than idea until he moves from Europe to the United States, comes into contact with the Harlem Renaissance and Abyssinian Baptist Church, and then moves back to Germany during the rise of the Third Reich. And in these interactions and these encounters, well, his thinking becomes a lot more than just thinking. Well, for Bonhoeffer, he developed a theological concept in his dissertation and habilitation, a concept. He comes over to the United States and, the, and when he returns to Germany, that concept is no longer just a theological concept. Now he's talking about discipleship. Mm. Now he's concerned about the concreteness of following Jesus in daily life because he met a community in New York whose entire body, their entire being was under the gospel. How could it not be? Their bodies are the location of terror that they experience in the United States. It was because of their bodies. And what does salvation mean to a person whose body is in danger every waking moment? What does salvation mean to a person who can't be sure where their next meal comes from? It's not just a concept, conceptual or abstract here. It's daily lived embodied reality. Mm-hmm. And some people, I mean, arguing about black church engagement in, in the political, well, when the systems and the structures of society are aimed at, in a, in, a, in a negative way, at the bodies of the people within your pew, how can you say you love them without being concerned about their embodied realities? If you mm-hmm. say you love your sister or brother and it's cold and you offer them no blanket, if you've got some, you can't say you actually love them. If, we, if, we, if we're going to make an effort at um, living the gospel and saying, love your neighbor as yourself, and you just recognize that your neighbor is fearing for their lives, can't find food to eat, or you know, is concerned about the fact that their children may leave home to go to school and not make it back home alive, then we have to do something about that as best as we can. Mm-hmm. And that's engaging the systems and the structures that are set up against you. So Bonhoeffer goes to church with a community who knows that reality. Mm-hmm. Not the conceptual, but the concrete. What what, what do we learn about following Jesus in that community? So he comes back. So, the, the, so then the, what we might say, the flow of theological knowledge for Bonhoeffer, it, it came, of course, from Germany to the United States, but something much more profound came from Harlem back to Germany in his experience, grounded him in his faith. Faith ethics, theology, all of it is abstract, if not grounded in lived experience, an actual 
life of the community. For Bonhoeffer, faith became real in the black church in Harlem who embodied a faith that was so much more than a concept. And the question that emerges from that for us right now is, how do we get our faith grounded into real life? How do we start living a faith that matters, that's concrete, not abstract? And I think from what we're seeing in Reggie Williams' work is that we need to live our faith with others who are living their faith. We need to become a part of a community of faith a sociality of faith, to understand our roles and our moral responsibilities, to understand that Christian living is about removing the obstacles that prevent us from doing community with others. Now, of course, that does not answer all of the questions that we have to ask. There's so many other big, important questions. And in part two of our conversation with Dr. Williams, we'll press in to some new and deep questions, places that will challenge what we've just said and help us think even better and deeper about what it looks like to live our faith. But I think for now, we have a lot to process, a lot to think through, and a lot to help us reimagine what it looks like for our faith to be on the ground and in the real. Thank you so much for listening to The People's Theology. If you're back or if you're new to the show, please subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. It really helps people find the show. And more importantly, would you share this episode with someone you know? Someone who's asking the same kinds of questions, wrestling with the same kinds of issues. Our hope always is that it would begin a conversation. And then check back for part two of our conversation with Dr. Williams coming very soon.